Chengdu Occupied Akiratu, 2054. Frankie cycled leisurely along the path through the midnight meadow. The air was cool on her face, and the moonlight was milky through the eternal smog that squatted over Sealock in western Akiratu. Soon, the field of grey flowers was behind her, and she saw the outskirts of town. Stuttering silhouettes of the glass recycling factory, the dairy tech shop, the burned carcass of the old prison, its black ribs reaching for the sky. Before she approached the flickering streetlights, she saw Erica and slowed down. You'd be forgiven for thinking they were twins, two young girls wearing heavy coats and breathing masks over their red lipstick, riding bikes with baskets. They squeezed their brakes and stopped beside one another, cheeks aflame against the chill of the night swirl. Erica steadied her bicycle, putting her boots on the ground, then reached into her pocket. She gave Frankie a cigarette, which the girl tucked behind her ear. With a last backwards glance, Erica placed her feet back on the pedals and they both continued on their separate ways. Frankie wheeled slowly into town. She was in no hurry. The Six Seasons restaurant stayed open well past dinner time. She found herself humming the resistance song, which she did when she was afraid, and immediately scolded herself and stopped. Golden light and drunken laughter spilled out of the cracks in the double-glazed windows of the restaurant. The warm hub was incongruent against the backdrop of destruction. How do people keep living in a place like this? Working, eating, sleeping, wearing the masks that stop the acid from eating your lungs. When things before had begun to look so promising, who would have thought this would be the future? Of course, it's not like this everywhere. Across the Fiume River, the trees are still alive and the sky is blue. The water is sweet. That's what they say, anyway. That's the whisper on the breeze. Frankie leaned her bike up against the side of the restaurant that smelled of soldiers' piss. It was darker there and less likely to be stolen. Frankie took off her mask and drew the cigarette from behind her ear. She read the name written in pen on the cigarette paper. Bergdorf, then struck a match and ignited the end, enjoying the quiet crackling sound it made as she dragged the fragrant smoke into her lungs. As Frankie exhaled, she thought about her mother and her neighbor, whose bravery never failed to strengthen her resolve. Once the cigarette began to burn the tips of her fingers, she dropped it and ground it into the concrete paver under her boot. Frankie checked her lipstick in the small mirror she kept in her pocket. It had been a gift, a silver clamshell of foundation powder. It had run out long ago, but the mirror still came in handy. The young woman pushed open the solid door of the six seasons, reminding herself to smile and look approachable, despite her cotton wool mouth. The warm air that rushed at her was scented with sweat and cheap alcohol, stale but welcoming. A few of the soldiers looked up at her, those not too drunk to notice, and some continued to stare as she found herself a booth and ordered a malt beer. Frankie opened the state-stamped book she had brought along and pretended to read while she eavesdropped on the soldiers' banter. Halfway through the drink, she had established who the high-ranking official was, and when Commander Bergdorf walked past her table, she knocked the beer bottle over and it rolled and smashed on the floor. Oh, Frankie cried, jumping up. Her cheeks were flushed. Sorry. The man, in his highly decorated uniform, looked amused. That's what you get, he said. Excuse me? 
That's what you get for having your nose buried in a book instead of keeping us company. Frankie appeared flustered. I'm only kidding, Bergdorf said. I'd also rather be reading a good book than hanging around those bastards. He tilted his head towards his men in case Frankie didn't know which bastards he meant. Can I buy you a drink? She hesitated. It doesn't have to mean anything, he said. I'll leave you to read in peace. The beleaguered bartender came round and started sweeping the broken glass away. You shouldn't be drinking that cheap beer anyway, the official said. So it's good riddance. In fact, if you hadn't dropped it, I would have grabbed it away from you. The commander was charming, and his eyes glittered in a violent way that made Frankie feel nervous and excited. Is that what you do? She asked him. Grab whatever you like. He didn't know what to make of her. Was she criticizing him, or was she joking? Was it an invitation? May I sit down? Frankie shrugged. Sure. Commander Bergdorf ordered a bottle of champagne for them to share. Someone as beautiful as you should be drinking something sparkling, he said. She resisted the impulse to roll her eyes. If anything was sparkling between them, it was the wall of badges and medals on his lapel. The silver Shengdu insignia was especially bright. Some people say the Sheng Swat sticker badges are molded from the molten guns of their victims. Some say the teeth. What do you say? He asked, as if he had been listening to her thoughts. About what? About this place. About life. Frankie nudged her book aside. There are a lot of silly stories around, Frankie said. That's what people do when they're scared. They tell stories. What stories do you tell? He asked. Wouldn't you like to know, she said, a smile playing on her lips. How ridiculous it was to sit with this handsome man and drink imported wine when she and her family had been hungry for years. When they came to the end of the bottle, Bergdorf was drunk enough to stroke Frankie's thigh under the table, and she was drunk enough to let him. When he got too close to her secret, she grabbed his hand to stop him. His eyes burnt into hers. Frankie pulled on her overcoat. Do you want to get some air? She asked. Tipsy, they stumbled out of the restaurant. Frankie fetched her bike and wheeled it alongside them as they strolled towards the forest. You need to go slowly, she said. I'm not one of those Silver City girls. His eyes flashed under the flickering streetlights. You're worth a hundred of those girls. He seemed more excited then, knowing she was a virgin, and he picked up his pace. They reached the dark woods and disappeared into the trees. The commander started to touch her, and she let her bike fall. He kissed her hard on the lips and pushed her up against the rough trunk of the tree. He stroked her through her coat and she groaned. His fingers traced her neck, her breasts, her stomach, and then went under her skirt. Wait, she said, and he drew away from her. I've got something to show you. Without taking her eyes off Bergdorf, she began to unbutton her coat. He watched her hungrily, one by one. Once it was open, she started opening her blouse. Cold forest air made her nipples shine through her brassiere. You're beautiful, he said. I don't even know your name. Frankie reached under her skirt while the commander watched her with lust-glazed eyes. She pulled out her small revolver, and as he saw the glint of the milky moon on its barrel, she pulled the trigger three times. The trio of bullets exploded in Bergdorf's chest, and he fell backwards, his face contorted with shock. 
Whenever Frankie rehearsed these liquidations in her mind, she would be cold-hearted and courageous. She'd have a line ready, something like, sparkly enough for you, or good riddance, and then smoke a cigarette. But when it came to the actual executions, her boldness leaked away and left her shivering. Her instinct was always to help them get up. Frankie watched as the commander's body convulsed on the dark forest floor. She had to watch them until they were motionless. Her fingers shook as she buttoned up her clothes again, and even though she tried to swallow her horror, she turned and doubled over, vomiting up the sour champagne. The men had already dug a hole deeper in the woods. They'd arrive in a few minutes to undress the commander and bury him. Frankie picked up her bike and wheeled it swiftly out of the forest. When she got to the outskirts, she took her compact mirror out and flashed it in the direction of where Erica was waiting, then hopped onto her bike and started to ride home. A few minutes later, she crossed paths with Erica and they nodded at each other. This time, they didn't stop. No one will suspect a young girl like you of being a resistance fighter, Erica had said the day she had arrived to recruit Frankie. You'll be able to make a real difference. Frankie's mother had reluctantly agreed. It started with distributing pamphlets and defacing Silver State propaganda. That wasn't new to Frankie. Her mother had been sheltering dissidents for years. They had always collected clothes and baked bread for the Akirati children orphaned by the war, even if it used their last sack of rationed flour. Their neighbor, Yana, a respected journalist, had been writing against the Shengdu policies for as long as she could remember. Frankie would babysit her small children, Kitsune and Miller Mouse. Yana was like an older sister to her. After a successful mission one day, slipping past Shengdu soldiers unnoticed to deliver some explosives, Erica asked her if she wanted to save children. Of course, said Frankie. She loved Kitsune and Mouse as if they were her siblings. Her breath caught when she thought of them starving in a concentration camp. Of course I want to save them. What is required of you won't be easy, warned Erica. You'll hate yourself if you do it. They took her to an underground potato shed and taught her how to shoot. She had a natural talent for it, and Erica was pleased. She gave her the powder compact and a tube of red lipstick. When she tried to give the revolver back, Erica told her to keep it. Frankie had been confused. How will this help save the children? The idea of the children in camps haunted her. There were no photographs, of course they weren't, and no official documentation. But Yana had contacts all over Akeratu, and she told Frankie about the atrocities taking place all over the province. Children in silver cages, she said, barcodes tattooed on their necks, gas chambers that looked like showers. Frankie lay awake for nights on end, stomach growling from hunger, brain buzzing with the idea of the toddlers in camps. The soldiers would bang their rifle butts on the doors of adjacent houses and the terrible sound would travel through the whole neighborhood. First, they took disabled people. Even a limp could be enough to make you disappear overnight. Then, homeless people. Then orphans. They said they were taking them over the Fiume River, where life was more comfortable. Then, when the meat rations ran out, they began shooting the cats and dogs. Can't they take the animals across the Fiume too? Frankie had asked her mother. She didn't answer her daughter. She didn't know how. Then Frankie understood that one day the soldiers would come for Yana's family, for
for Erica, for her mother, and for her. They'd bash their rifles on the door, and then it would be over. Not without a fight, Erica said, and smiled. Frankie smiled back and clipped her loaded revolver into the leather holster strapped to her thigh. We'll fight the evil our own way, Erica said, checking her lipstick in the mirror. We'll stop the generals and the captains. We'll stop the commanders of the Silver Cage concentration camps. We'll fight them one liquidation at a time. What had Bergdorf said that night, when Frankie had knocked her cheap beer onto the floor? She remembered how his Sheng Swatsticker badge had sparkled on his lapel. Good riddance, the commander had said, and his eyes had glittered with violence. <laughs>